0: hello everyone and welcome to the podcast life is a story we tell ourselves on this episode we're joined by Ryan Lynch Ryan is the executive director of the third Millennium Alliance or TMA the TMA manages the Hama Coaque Reserve in the coastal forest of Ecuador which is in the tumbes Chaco Magdalena biodiversity hotspot Ryan is a tropical ecologist with an MS in wildlife ecology and conservation. He first visited and fell in love with Ecuador in 2001 and has spent the past 20 years working on a variety of research and conservation projects across the country. Among his achievements are the discovery and description of numerous frog species new to science and the creation and expansion of two protected areas. His work has been featured in scientific journals and popular media outlets, such as National Geographic, Mongabay, and the Discovery Channel. He joined the TMA in 2014, following two years working as the Ecuador Program Director for the nonprofit The Biodiversity Group. He is with us on this episode to talk about TMA's work to protect and restore the most endangered rainforest on Earth. Ryan, welcome to Life is a Story We Tell Ourselves.
1: Thank you, Don. And thanks for that great introduction.
0: (laughs) Sure. No, you've done a lot of great work here in in Ecuador. So let's start off by finding out exactly what started you off on your current path of conservation and protection of the Earth's uh, resources. Uh, Was there a singular event or something that influenced you to get started on your life's journey?
1: really, I'm one of the people who, who really has had a lifelong passion for nature, the outdoors, and just general environmental causes. As long as I can remember going back to a kid growing up in California, I always wanted to be outside and had an interest in all things living and Would much prefer exploring my backyard and looking for bugs and animals in the the yard than, you know, being inside and staring at a screen. So in my case, it it wasn't a singular event. It really has been a lifelong passion of being outside and, and working to to study and protect nature.
0: Yeah, I understand. So what brought you to Ecuador specifically?
1: And so I think a lot of biologists and people who are interested in nature have a similar uh, story, which is we, we learn about the general building blocks of life and all that is biodiversity and find our way in our careers to determine exactly kind of what niche or what field of biology we're most interested in And like many, the tropical rainforest really drew my attention from an early age. I always knew that the, you know, the tropical rainforests are where most life on the planet can be found. So that always is something that I wanted to be involved in.
0: Well, but how did you learn about the tropical rainforest in in the first place? I mean, you grew up in in California, uh, near San Francisco, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And obviously, as a kid, everything that I knew was was related to the local ecosystems of Northern California, which are just as interesting and important as other parts of of the globe. But as a kid, I think as with many other kids, the Amazon rainforest in particular something is something that always grabbed my attention. It had this name recognition and had some of the most charismatic species on the planet. And so I, I learned about it just like any other kid of, you know, studying the, the wildlife, the species of animals that are found on this planet, and became aware that there was something very special about the tropical forest of the Americas.
0: I mean, did you learn these things in school or did you first see the tropical rainforest on a national geographic show or, uh, did was, tell you about it or was it simply in a textbook?
1: I think it was a mix. I, I can't think of a, a singular event, but it certainly came across all of those different, you know, sources of books just kids books that talk about the different species of animals that can be found on the planet and where they can be found and shows documentaries like you pointed out things that highlight some of the the unique species that can be found around the world and so it came through all kind of avenues school books videos all of that kind of stuff
0: so, I mean, watching these shows, reading these books, hearing about these areas, uh, there must have been something in your psyche or, or spirit that bonded uh, with what you were experiencing. What What was that like when you you were younger? Did some Did it awaken something deep within you? It did,
1: and and, and there was something about the. Just the pure complexity and diversity of life, specifically in the tropical forest of the Americas, Central South America always drew my attention. And it was something that I, I always felt drawn to. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. For one, which isn't even necessarily related to the biodiversity, but just the The climate of the tropics, I've always been a very warm weather, warm climate, hot, humid environment doesn't really bother me. And so much of my life has been living and working in areas with similar climates. Um, Spend most of my childhood in California and then over to Florida for my university and graduate studies. And then the tropics also were an extension of that, just continuing to move south. So a mix of the biodiversity found in the tropics, the climate of the tropics, and then a third layer would just be the cultural aspect of of tropical countries that drew my attention and eventually are what resulted in me wanting to travel and get to know some of the different countries in Latin America.
0: Well, tell us a little bit uh, about TMA, uh, specifically the bioregion. It's in uh, the ecological zone, the flora and fauna. Uh, what attracted you to that area and how did you get started working and in, in with uh, the third millennial Millennium Alliance?
1: And so I guess as a, a quick backstory, I first, as part of my draw to the tropics, my first experience was actually as an undergraduate student studying biology and anthropology I did a study abroad course here in Ecuador so that was my first dive into the hands-on experience in uh, in Ecuador in particular and during that time I really fell in love with the country and I met some great friends and contacts and really fell, in love with everything that Ecuador has to offer, the people, the environments, the biodiversity, and also just the the conservation history of the country. And so that first experience, which was in 2001, kind of confirmed my, my desire to pursue a career in tropical ecology and conservation. And Ever since that first trip, I just kept whenever I was able to make enough money and and take some free time to travel, I would come back down to Ecuador. And I did that quite a few times until eventually the opportunity to move down here more permanently presented itself. And so in 2012 is when I finished my graduate studies which was also in Florida, where I did both my undergraduate and graduate work, and made the move south to live here in Quito, Ecuador, where I live now. And when I first got to Ecuador in 2012, that year, I was actually working for another organization, which you had mentioned in the bio at the start of the the podcast, the Biodiversity Group, which is a research organization that really aims to document life that's overlooked in tropical countries where not a lot of research has been done, where there's still a lot of gaps in knowledge. And so for two years, I ran a research and education program with that organization, which allowed me to continue really getting to know Ecuador, bouncing around the country, different parts of the country, different forest types, different communities. And through that work is actually how I met the founders of TMA, the organization that I now work with, and got to know the Hamakuake Reserve that TMA owns and manages on the Pacific coast of Ecuador. And so in 2014, I ended up Um, leaving the biodiversity group and moving on to Third Millennium Alliance. And since then, have really worked to help TMA advance our mission of protecting and restoring this incredibly rare forest that's found right along the equator on the Pacific coast of Ecuador.
0: So the Hamacoaque Reserve is actually part of a much larger biodiversity area. It's actually a, a biodiversity hotspot. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what's so special about the Hama uh, Kwake Reserve and and in particular this uh, Tumbes Chaco Magdalena Biodiversity Hotspot. What's special about this area? I mean, you've characterized it as the most endangered rainforest uh, in the world. So uh, describe to us why that's so and, and what's going on in this area.
1: Yes, that's... Uh, Really at the heart of what we do at TMA is working in this incredibly important biodiversity hotspot and right at the core of the, the hotspot, in fact. And so the hotspot actually runs from Panama down through Colombia, Ecuador and into Peru. And it's one of the top 25 most biodiverse areas on the planet. And where the Hamakuaque Reserve is located is right along the equator, which is uh, an important transition point within the greater Chocotumbe's biodiversity hotspot, where the incredibly wet coastal rainforest known as the Choco transitions into the coastal tropical dry forest of South America. And so right at the equator, these two dramatically different forest types, extremely wet tropical forest, and extremely dry and seasonal dry forest meet at the equator. And the Hamaquake Reserve is located right at that transition point. So you can see remnants of choco forest and tropical dry forest within a very small area. And you pair that with a coastal mountain range that is found right along the Pacific coast in this area. And you get an incredible diversity of forest types within a very small area. And why that's important is that different forest types provide habitat to different species. And so the Chocotumbe's biodiversity hotspot actually contains some of the highest levels of endemic species on the planet. And so these are species that are, are very limited to specific areas. And because of this dramatic shift from some of the wettest rainforest to driest uh, tropical forests in the world, we have a lot of species in this area that are only found in a very small and restricted range. And that means that if these areas are not protected immediately, those species will also likely disappear from the planet. And so the work we're doing is really aiming to protect the the core of the the nexus of choco to dry forest before it's gone forever
0: i understand so what are some of the most uh unique endemic species that are that are found in this area that and what are some of the most uh endangered
1: so the probably most important that our organization has really focused on is the ecuadorian capuchin monkey so it's a small bodied primate. There's two species of primate that are found in the Hamaquaki Reserve, but this one in particular is a critically endangered primate. It's in the top 25 most endangered primates on the planet. And it really is on the brink of extinction because of its extremely restricted range. It's really only found in the western coastal part of Ecuador. And just a tiny dip into the far northwest peruvian uh, landscape and that happens to be an area with incredibly high rates of deforestation and a long track record of poor landscape management and so it's a species who is very close to disappearing from the planet has lost a vast majority of its habitat and needs help immediately so it's not so it doesn't disappear within our lifetime and yeah. so the capuchin
0: i was just going to ask how many of those um, individuals are, are left on the planet do you know the numbers
1: they're actually we don't know the exact numbers um there's very little work that has been done with this particular species that used to be considered uh a single species across a much larger area until further molecular work was done and the species was split. And this particular species has a very limited range that's much smaller now. And there hasn't been extensive work done to determine exactly how many are remaining and the true extent of their distribution. And so Part of our work is actually driven by research and better understanding how the capuchins are using the landscape and what is important for their diet, what food species, how far they move, the, the size of the groups that they live in. And so a lot of the work that we're doing in our area is aimed at filling those gaps in knowledge about the, the capuchin so that we can better manage the landscape for for the species.
0: I see. What's the next closest related species?
1: There's another capuchin that if you just go further to the north, it's another capuchin species that is found in the coastal province of Esmeraldas and then moving north. And they're very similar, the capuchin that's found to the north is a little darker in color is more recognized as kind of the capuchin look that you would see in in films and in movies and things like that and the distribution is very it comes very close to the northern extent of the ecuadorian capuchin that is found in our reserve and so those two are very closely related but they're their populations don't overlap in the northwest
0: of Ecuador. I understand. I don't want to get too technical for our, our listeners, but those of us that are biologists are interested in this kind of thing. How did that speciation uh, take place? Um, was there some geographical uh, change uh, or boundary uh, that caused that, that particular split in the species?
1: There are, there is a a major river, there's a major river that divides these two species that runs from the high Andes around the Quito area all the way down and puts out into the Pacific Ocean. And as far as we know, the Ecuadorian capuchin that, that is found in the Amacoaque Reserve is found only south of that river, and then the other is found to the north. And so I would imagine that it's uh, that geographic barrier of the rivers, a large river system that divides the two.
0: Is that the Esmeraldas River, or the Gualabamba? or which, which of the rivers is that? It is the, yeah,
1: the Guayabamba that runs down from the highlands.
0: Right. I understand. Wow. So what are some of the major challenges you're, you're facing in protecting and restoring uh, this area?
1: And so one of the biggest threats is just the continued expansion of deforestation. So a a lot of the time when I talk about our work, I have to paint the picture of kind of the historical picture of Western Ecuador and how it relates to the bigger conservation picture of Ecuador. Ecuador is a fairly tiny country. It's about the size of Colorado in the US as an example. And yet it has the Amazon rainforest in the east, the great Amazon that most people on the planet are very aware of. And then from the Amazon, it climbs up into the Andes mountain range that runs along the the western side of, of South America. And then it drops down to the Pacific coast. And of course, Ecuador also has the Galapagos Islands out in the Pacific. And so for a tiny country, it has a whole lot to offer in terms of the biodiversity and the, the different ecosystems that are represented here. Yet most people are only aware of the Amazon and the, the Galapagos. It's where a lot of the, the public attention and Funding and awareness are, are really focused on those areas, yet the Pacific coast of Ecuador has been largely overlooked. And historically, the western part of the country has really been the agricultural production center for the country. And so in the 40s and 50s and 60s, the Ecuadorian government really encouraged the agricultural expansion of western Ecuador. And as a result, a very rapid and very uncontrolled expansion of agriculture and deforestation and land grabbing took place. And before Ecuador or the world really knew what, what was truly going on, we had lost a vast majority of the forest in the western part of this country. And so it's an area that has been overlooked. And not very, uh, it's not on people's radar when it comes to conservation, but it is in fact one of the most endangered places on the planet. And it's an area where only a few percent of truly native forests still remain as a result of a long history of deforestation and uncontrolled and unsustainable agricultural expansion. And that actually continues today. It's still seen as the agricultural center for the country and uh, tropical fruits like banana are still a major export for the country. And it is the this continued uh, history of unsustainable land management that threatens the last remnants of forest in the Western part of the country. And our job is to find ways to not just stop the expansion of that deforestation, but actually start to reverse it and promote more sustainable ways to manage the landscape so that the people who live in and around these incredibly biodiverse areas can make a living without having to cut down the forest.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting in comparison with the United States and its early history Uh, That's the geopolitical story of the success, for example, of many countries, and especially the United States. I mean, most of the forest uh, in the eastern United States from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River was cut down. Uh, There are no old growth forests left. It was all uh, given over to uh, resource exploitation, particularly agriculture, logging, and some people would argue this is what makes nations great and successful. So how does the country or the political establishment in in Ecuador view your efforts in light of their uh, desire to have a uh, prosperous and economically prosperous country? I mean, how do you reconcile those things? That is
1: at the heart and center of, of the discussions that are taking place right now. And Ecuador has been at the forefront of that discussion for quite some time because they have attempted a number of uh, projects at a global scale, really trying to promote conservation of biodiversity in the country, but with financial assistance and support from the international community. So. A lot of countries like Ecuador in Latin America and other parts of the world understand that their their income source is largely based on extractivist activity, uh, oil and mining being the, the primary two. And yet the world is constantly telling these countries that they shouldn't you know, extract those resources, and they should move to do more sustainable activities to support the country. But it's not easy for a country like Ecuador, a small country in a small economy to do that. And so really trying to find ways around that to support the country's shift to more sustainable uh, management, while also supporting the economy of the country is A constant discussion that's taking place, and while there is still a lot of oil mining, oil and mining taking place in this country, there's also an increasingly loud conversation taking place uh, about alternative options. And what we're doing is very much is trying to to fill that gap. We're trying to find ways to address some of the socioeconomic drivers of deforestation, which are the primary drivers in the country is cut down the forest to make a living and support your family and for the country to support uh, the country on an economic, economic level. And there needs to be a better management of resources. And so what we're doing with our project is not just trying to protect and, and you know create protected areas of intact forest and say, hands off, uh, nobody can touch this, but rather these are areas of high biological importance and we need to protect them. But to do so, we need to create social programs that find sustainable ways to make a living. And obviously our work is done at a very local scale with communities that are located in and around the the equator on the pacific coast around the hamacoaki reserve and a project that we're really working to develop is a kind of agroforestry regenerative landscape management model to not just protect the existing forest but to restore the degraded forest and also ensure that local families, local communities can make a living through those regenerative activities.
0: And how, how and are so, you doing that? How are you doing that? How how's that possible? Seems like a tall order.
1: It is. And yet it is so key to our work is to build this model that can be applied to a larger scale over time. Because we need as uh as humankind, we need to find ways to make a living, produce food, and also protect biodiversity. And so in our particular case, what we're doing is using what's known as agroforestry with local farmers, which we live in and around local agricultural communities around the Hamakwaki Reserve, who have a long track record of doing farming. And the traditional method of farming is cut down some forest, burn the the trunks and the the leftover um, branches that are there after selling the wood to make some money. And then they'll do monoculture farming on that plot until the soil is exhausted. And then they'll repeat that cycle and cut down another patch of forest and sell the wood and burn the, the landscape and then do monoculture farming and we are working with local farmers who are very aware and have a long history of being farmers and so it's something that they know how to do well and we're working with them to transition from the monoculture heavy pesticide version of planting corn as far as the eye can see where Tropical forest used to be, and replacing that with cacao agroforestry, which is a mix of planting native tree species that are found in the area in the native forest with fruit trees and food that the local families who live around the area require in their diet day to day, as well as cacao, which is a commodity that is highly desirable on the international market and can provide a sustainable source of income for those families. Mm
0: -hmm. No, that, that makes a lot, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. And you're having some success with that.
1: And we are. Yeah. And we've developed this model over the last few years. We saw a, a massive spike after years of a very solid conservation track record in terms of, protecting existing forest from illegal logging. During the pandemic, we actually, and this goes for not just our organization, but many other organizations that do similar work here in, in Ecuador that I have talked to, a lot of us started seeing a spike in illegal logging as a result of the pandemic, where people were losing their jobs and need to support their families and started to turn back to the old ways of going into forested areas, cutting down the forest, selling the wood. And that activity started spiking again. And we saw a need to address it immediately. And so really, this cacao agroforestry project that we have developed together with local families that live in and around the, the, the greater conservation area where we work, is to fill that gap. And so in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, we started moving much quicker to develop this project. And we now have about 40 families that each are sustainably managing and restoring a hectare, so about 40 hectares of land around the Hamakwaki Reserve that were completely cleared and dry arid pasture land previous to this project. And in the last two years alone, we've been able to really start the process of regenerating those properties with the cacao agroforestry model. And so we're starting to see a lot of success, yet this really is just the beginning because our greater vision is to expand this project to a much larger area that is we're calling the the capuchin corridor and this is a larger area nearly 40,000 hectare area along the equator where other patches like the Humacuarike reserve exist and where other agricultural communities are looking for a solution to provide for their family and also protect the local biodiversity Sources of water and things like that.
0: Right, understand. I note that some of your work involves uh, carbon uh, sequestration, uh, which I assume is being pursued to reverse the effects of climate change. Uh, but the alarm bells about carbon dioxide, in particular, being spewed into the atmosphere at alarming rates, was sounded over really over a hundred years ago. Do you think uh, you can really make a difference uh, with what you're doing in the in the reserve with carbon? Sequestration, so that uh, it can contribute to the reversal of climate change.
1: It is true that that in general, things are moving too slowly on that global scale, which is frustrating to see from from our perspective. But at the same time, we have certainly seen uh, renewed interest and desire from our network of followers and supporters and donors to offset their carbon footprint. And so trying to do a better job at really demonstrating the the climate benefit to our work has been a goal of ours for some time. And the more that we're able to provide that information and show the transparency of just how powerful conservation, and regenerative agroforestry projects can be for fighting climate change, the better chance we'll have to scale our efforts up. Mm -hmm. And so once we really developed, uh, did a lot of background work in terms of the carbon impact of our project, we started sharing that information with our audience that supports our work and had a lot of good feedback and interest in continuing that. So while our project still is, this uh, kind of template for a larger project, it is building that foundation to tie conservation and restoration efforts in a unknown area of the world to the global picture. And that's really what we need, we need people in north america and europe and all parts of the globe to be aware of this issue and to do something like an active uh activity that tries to fight climate change and protect biodiversity mm-hmm. and the carbon uh, world is just kind of one tool to help make that connection
0: right i understand And uh, those of you listening, if you want to learn more about what uh, TMA is doing, you can go to TMA.earth, that's dot .earth, TMA.earth, not org, or com, uh, TMA.earth, to their website and learn a lot more about uh, what they're uh, doing. So um, one of the other things I wanted to explore with you is you may be aware of the effort to protect 30% of the Earth's biodiversity by the year 2030. How does your project help to achieve that ambitious goal?
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic campaign to try to raise awareness of the importance of biodiversity conservation, but also work to build a network of projects that are doing the field work, doing the on the ground work to make it happen. And it really does take a global effort to to make that a reality, to reach the goal. And I think it's important, not just, and I think this is a central part of the, the campaign, but it's not just to protect 30%, but the right 30%. And when you take that into account, There are very specific parts of the globe that that house a vast majority of the species. And where we're working in coastal Ecuador is one of those areas. The Pacific Forest that runs along the northwest coast of South America is one of the most biodiversity-rich and important areas in the world. And it needs to be included in that campaign, in the effort to to protect the areas that house the most number of species. And in our particular scenario, we have been working for the past 15 years to protect the last remnants of this very important and biodiversity-rich ecosystem when very few other organizations are focused in the area. And so our project, I think, plays a key role in filling a gap in terms of the geographic location of conservation projects. As I had mentioned previous previously in our conversation, a lot of attention does go to places like the Amazon rainforest, which is also an incredibly important uh, biodiversity spot for, for the planet. But there are also a lot of organizations that are focused on protecting the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, we're working in an area that is very rich in biodiversity yet mm-hmm. overlooked. And so what we're doing is trying to to fill that gap and be an important conservation and restoration player in the Pacific forest, in the the, the Choco, Tumbe's biodiversity hotspot. Sure.
0: To some extent, we may have listeners who have tuned in for the first time and are listening to us use terms like hotspots and biodiversity and speciation and the importance of preserving and uh, protecting, but how do you perhaps change the language or modify the language and substitute a another way of talking that inspires people to a sense of wonder uh, of it all and and how miraculous the uh, trees, the flora and the fauna, the animals, uh, and the tremendous numbers and, and differences all the way from insects to, to whales. And just how fascinating that all is and and how people should be awed by it all so when you're talking to people and communicating to them are there other words we can use other than biodiversity or speciation or um, habitat and the kinds of things that that you and i have been used to talking about throughout our whole career i guess it's a matter of interpretation and education
1: yeah it really is and sometimes it, it maybe it takes Uh, a specific example, which I give frequently when I give seminars or talks on our work. One of the the examples that I like to give, which kind of gets at that same idea of species richness and really the, the biodiversity metrics of the tropical forests are an example with amphibians. My personal background, my passion in terms of wildlife is definitely in the more amphibian and reptile realm. I've spent many years studying amphibians and reptiles of both North America and South America. And it's one of the things that really drove me to continue doing work here in Ecuador is this fact that there are just there's so little that is still known about the species of tropical forest because it is such a complex and diverse ecosystem that there's a lot that we just don't know but when I talk about biodiversity I try to give a very specific example and one that I share frequently is the difference between how many, just simply how many species of amphibians are found in the entire United States versus how many are found here in Ecuador. And as I had mentioned previously, Ecuador is only about the size of Colorado. And so, a much smaller country. And so, when you look at currently known numbers of species in the entire United States, the number sits somewhere around 230 unique species of amphibian. And when you look at Ecuador, the number is over 600 and constantly increasing because every year as more research is done, tens of additional species of amphibians are described here in Ecuador. And so the number just keeps increasing. And so you have a country the size of Colorado that has two to three times more species of amphibian than the entire United States. And when you give that kind of example, I think it is a little easier to just picture the the true difference in in species richness of the temperate versus tropical ecosystems. And that same comparison holds true for pretty much every taxa, you can look at invertebrates, you can look at mammals, you can look at birds, you name it, uh, there will be more species per area in the tropics than in the temperate zones. And that highlights the the importance of protecting these areas.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Along with the the beauty uh, of it all, I mean, in, in this country, there are Over well, I guess now they're close to over 5,000 different species of orchids. And you can also say that there's 5,000 different forms of beauty uh, just in that particular representation of flora uh, in the world and preserving that beauty because most people can identify with the beauty of, of orchids Um, what it does to your soul, what it does to your spirit when you see something so delicate and and beautiful as some of these tiny orchids all the way up to some of the larger uh, orchids and the epiphytes of course and the bromeliads and all of these things that you see in the forest that uh, some people have in their homes as as tropical plants and in their gardens. Uh, All of these things would be lost if they're not protected and and preserved. Uh, This beauty, the sense of wonder, Uh, Everything that's uh, fascinating uh, about uh, being alive uh, in the first place is what we're talking about when we're talking about these uh, areas of uh, biodiversity, the richness of of species and the work that you're doing is really about uh, continuing to provide a sense of wonder, a sense of harmony and a sense of richness um, and a sense of the miraculous in uh, just uh, being alive, I sometimes see a tiny insect and it just boggles my mind, uh, the, the richness and the uniqueness of, uh, of life on the face of the earth and the work that you're doing is extremely important to preserving and protecting that all, all of that. Um, could you share with us as we wrap this up, maybe what is the one metaphysical or extremely out of the ordinary event that has shaped your life or were still shaping your life. I mean, you're out there in, in the middle of nature. I mean, you must have had some sort of uh, experience that was extremely memorable uh, to you that you'll never forget.
1: There are, it, there, and there's so many, but the times that, that come to mind are certainly those moments where I'm out walking in the forest alone and take the time to just sit and observe. And it's one of the things that I most enjoy doing is just going out into the rainforest and taking a walk and sitting down and just observing. And there's been many different stories that I could share with you. About times that you just let things unfold in front of you, but some of the ones that come to mind, there's a lot of the times being a herpetologist. I a lot of the work that I do is done at night, and well, I'm out there looking for amphibians and reptiles primarily. All sorts of life come out at night, and if you go out and are quiet and try to have a minimal impact on your surrounding, sometimes things happen that just really make your day and stick in your mind. And those scenarios are things that I'll never forget, things that I've gone out and just been slowly walking on my own at night in the Hama Reserve and had an ocelot, a a small wild cat that is found throughout much of the the neotropics and had one walk down the hill right in front of me on the, on the trail, turn and look at me and then slowly wander off. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, move too quickly or, or make any noise. I was alone. I didn't try to rip my camera out of my backpack or anything. I just let it happen. Mm -hmm. And it's those encounters that really stick with me. Mm -hmm. And there's endless scenarios like that that I think are really what I live for. And in the end, it's those types of experiences in nature that are what drive me to want to protect it.
0: I understand. And I think for humanity at large, our health and our well-being is so dependent upon our ability to interact with nature and to have wildness, if you will, and wilderness uh, surrounding us. It's uh, something uh, that's almost unexplainable, but our health and our well-being, both spiritually and physically, is uh, dependent upon... Uh, these wild areas, and us protecting and preserving the our natural and cultural resources. Ryan, thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you for the work that the TMA does. Again, for our listeners, if you want to support this kind of work, uh, their website is tma.earth, um, and it's the Third Millennium Alliance doing this wonderful work in, in Ecuador. Thank you, Ryan, and maybe we'll have you back on the program at some point in you can share with us uh, how the project is, is faring here in Ecuador. Thanks a lot. I'd love to thank you very much, Don. Thank you for joining us on this episode of life is a story we tell ourselves. You can subscribe to the podcast at lifeisastorypodcast.com. This podcast season, we will explore the many efforts around the world to protect our natural and cultural resources. Brian O'Donnell, the executive director with the Campaign for Nature, will join us in our next episode. In the meantime, stay safe, share happiness, and remember, never stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing.